Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We adore you. We praise you for your, your grace. We praise you for your mercy. Though our sins be many, your mercy is much more. Father, we, we lean upon that for our salvation. We thank you. We give you praise. We give you glory that you and you alone are due. Father, as part of our worship, Lord, um, we now come to the time where we have a, a reading and a hearing uh, and a preaching of your word. I pray for an anointing, Lord, from your Holy Spirit, Lord, that uh, what would be said would be said clearly, what would be received would be received according to your spirit. Father, speak into our lives in a powerful way that we might be like you, conform to your, the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to return to the Sermon on the Mount, um, where we find ourselves in the middle of six examples where Jesus interprets the Old Testament law and counters the teaching and traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, the first example was anger. We handled that a couple months ago. First example was anger, Matthew 5, 21 to 26. The Old Testament command was, do not murder. But Jesus said, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And he looks beyond the physical act to the attitudes of the heart. The anger we hold against a brother or a sister is on par with the physical act of murder. The same way last time we, we looked together at the sin of adultery. Matthew 5, 27, 28, the commandment was, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The lust of the eyes, the desires of the heart are the same to God as the physical act of adultery. And it's important for us to remember that and I've shared this in each of those messages, that Jesus is not adding to the law of God, nor is he giving some new interpretation to add meaning to the text that wasn't previously there. Rather, what Jesus is doing is interpreting the text according to its original meaning and exposing the heart of God for his people. Compliance to the law was never and is never about checking off a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, it's about aligning our wills according to God's will with the intent of bringing Him glory in all things. This morning, we're going to move on to the subject of divorce, a hard topic. Um, if you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, and I'll read where Jesus continues. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay? 
So before we dig into the question of divorce, which we'll certainly do this morning, we need to dig into the covenant of marriage. What is it? How did it begin? How does God view and value that covenant? Marriage is not a social construct instituted by man. It's not a temporary contract between two individuals that can be entered into and then quickly discarded. It cannot be redefined through legislation or Supreme Court decisions. God's plan for marriage is, has been, always will be one man, one woman, joined in one flesh union for life. But today's culture works to destroy the sanctity of marriage by redefining it. Rather than one, one man, one woman, we have institutionalized now two men, two women. We're well on our way to redefining, redefining it to allow for polygamy and much worse. You know, a number of years ago, I was um, involved in an online discussion on gay marriage. I tend not to get embroiled in that mess online usually, but for some reason I was involved in this one. And during the conversation, a young relative who was defending gay marriage said, well, why don't we just outlaw divorce? Her intent was to point out the hypocrisy of Christians who take a biblical view on gay marriage while turning a blind eye to divorce. I quickly responded with a very surprising yes. Now, you're not going to legislate that, but the, the intent was good. She had accidentally stumbled upon an important connection that I believe most people miss. Most people miss this. Our current cultural situation, where we're completely redefining the institution of marriage, is directly, in my opinion, linked to the devaluing of marriage that occurred through the sexual revolution and no-fault divorce. Certainly, divorce has always been with us. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the days of Jesus. That's why Jesus is talking about it here. And we see it today. That said, I do believe that in our current age, we've seen an escalation that connects these events. A devaluation of marriage, both in the culture and in the church, has precipitated an increase in divorce rates, while also opening the door for a redefinition of marriage to make it nothing more than a social construct. It's also given rise, in my opinion, to many in the current generation delaying or avoiding marriage altogether. If it's nothing more than a social contract, then it can be whatever society wants it to be. It can be two men, two women, or any other random combination. It can be entered into lightly and then discarded and replaced. But society doesn't define marriage. God does. God does. And that's a crucial point for us to understand. It is God alone who both institutes and defines marriage. And if we're to understand marriage and divorce biblically, then we must do so according to his plan and purposes, not man's warped ideas and desires. Matthew 19, 3 to 6. You're going to see I'm going to go, we're preaching, I'm preaching Matthew 5, but I'm going to jump to Matthew 19 a lot because Matthew 19 echoes Matthew 5, but it gives us a little bit more detail 
Okay, so I'm going to go back and forth a lot. Matthew 9, 19, 3 to 6. The Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They were testing him. Their traditions allowed for divorce for any reason at all. Yet Jesus points them back to the beginning, to the original institution of marriage. So hear this. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, that's Matthew 19, 3 to 6. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. Have you not read? Have you not read? Whenever Jesus says that, he's pointing back to the authoritative word of God. He pointed them to the Old Testament scriptures. The Pharisees should have been experts on the law through their studies. Yet in so many cases, they had let their traditions overshadow the truth of what God had said. So Jesus points them back to the book. Points them back to the book. On day six of the creation week, after God had made the earth and then made the animals, he said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, Genesis 1, 26 to 7. So God created man to mirror his image. He created them male and female to mirror his image. And together, man and, women, and woman exalt God and glorify Him to a world that desperately needs to see who He is. And the creation account provides more detail in Genesis chapter 2. After God created Adam, put him to work in the, He put him to work in the garden, He said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Genesis 2.18 And the Lord put Adam into a deep sleep and took a rib out of his side. And from the rib, he made woman and brought her to man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, his wife. And they shall become one flesh, Genesis 2, 23 to 24. So that, that is the institution of marriage. That is the institution of marriage. God created a perfect world with a perfect design for marriage. One man, one woman, in a one flesh union for life. God did not, hear this, God did not create divorce. God did not create divorce. In fact, Malachi 2.16 in the NASB and the New King James says, God hates divorce. The Lord does not create what he despises. There is no place in Scripture where God commands divorce. There is no place in Scripture where he ordains divorce 
Rather, in every single instance, Old Testament and New, he works to regulate divorce in a sin-cursed world. Okay? good example of that can be found in the Old Testament. first thing that's important for us to understand is I want us to notice that the word adultery is not mentioned when discussing divorce in the Old Testament. The reason for that, as you might remember I mentioned last time, was that the punishment for adultery was death. Okay? The punishment for adultery was death. Adulterous relationships did not end in divorce. They ended in death. Both guilty parties, male and female, were stoned. So in the Old Testament paradigm, any conversation about divorce was for a reason less than adultery. Okay? In fact, men of the era of that era invented all sorts of reasons to be rid of their wife. Generally, the, the men held a very low and poor view of women. They believed they had the right to divorce their wife for any and every reason. Maybe he didn't find her to be attractive any longer. Maybe he imagined some moral failing. Maybe she burned his dinner. The excuse is irrelevant. The excuse is irrelevant. The result was chaos. It was grossly unfair to the women. More often than not, they had no other means of support beyond their husband. It brought great suffering to the women and to the children. And while the reason for the divorce is anything that the man might conceive of, in reality, more than likely driven by lust and passion. We don't know that in every instance. In fact, I would be surprised if that was it in every instance. But we know the human heart, don't we? It's interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks on the subject of divorce immediately following his comments on lust and adultery. In fact, the phrase at the beginning of verse 31 says, it was also said. That links those two sections together. Not in a tight way, but in a loose way. It was also said. So when the Pharisees tested Jesus on the legality of divorce in Matthew 19, he pointed them to God's original purpose in creation. He rightly pointed them to the one flesh union. But then they asked a question. That's why I'm jumping to 19. This question tells a lot. They said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus is doubling down on that last part. But he says, he gave you this as a, because of your hardness of heart. All right? So what the Pharisees were doing there is they were interpreting the Old Testament law in the same way that Israel did. Okay? They, they mistakenly believed that they could divorce for any and every reason. They couldn't be more wrong. They couldn't be more wrong. Jesus corrects their thinking in the same way that Moses did in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. That'd probably be worthwhile to go there. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Moses never, hear this, he never commanded the Israelites to divorce. Rather, he permitted it under certain circumstances. He also regulated it in a way to protect the women of that time period. 
All right? So follow along with me if you can. Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. When, so you'll see the, the words, I'll emphasize some words, and you'll, you'll see these various conditions, right? And then a conclusion. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The law was given by Moses because of the people's hardness of heart. And rather than sanctioning divorce, it puts severe restrictions on it which greatly, greatly reduced its frequency. The first is that it limited divorce to certain causes that fit under the umbrella of indecency. Okay? Some translations read uncleanness. Limiting divorce to this single cause greatly reduced the number of divorces, and at least in theory, brought an end to the frivolous reasons that a man might dream up to put away his wife. Rather than giving a number of excuses for divorce, Moses' legislation greatly limited it. It dismissed all the frivolous, superficial, unjust reasons, restricting it to one particular matter, indecency. Second, if a man divorced his wife, he was to give her a bill of divorcement. Okay? So prior to this legislation, a man could divorce his wife simply by putting her out of his home. Okay? By doing this, the woman was at a great risk of harm. She might be charged with unfaithfulness or adultery and risk being stoned to death. The bill of divorcement was given to protect her. It showed that she was divorced not because of unfaithfulness, but for some other indecency or uncleanness. And that bill of divorcement would have been given to her in the presence of two witnesses. And the necessity of this the necessity of this bill of divorcement emphasized the seriousness of marriage. Divorce wasn't to be entered into lightly in a moment of passion. It was a very serious step which the bill of divorcement emphasized. All right? Third stipulation that was given there was that if the man divorces his wife, giving her a bill of divorce, and the woman remarries... And if the second man divorces her or dies, then the first man may not remarry the woman. The emphasis of this requirement was to show that marriage is not something you can walk in and out of at will. When the husband gives his wife a bill of divorcement, it's a permanent act. It's a permanent act. And the whole point of this passage, which the Pharisees of Jesus' day missed, was that far from commanding divorce for any reason, any and every reason, Moses' legislation greatly limited divorce and put severe restrictions on it. God never commanded or ordained divorce. God hates divorce. God hates divorce. 
But in a sin-cursed world, where marital relationships are greatly strained because of pride, lust, anger, and a whole host of other things, divorce is an unfortunate reality. And Moses gave the, the law because of the hardness of heart, but that doesn't change or affect God's ideal, which is clearly expressed in the one flesh union. Okay? In both Matthew 19 and in our passage this morning in Matthew 5, the focus of the Pharisees was on the legalistic details. All right, the details. Their questions focused on doing the paperwork, right? Rather than focusing on divorce as a moral question, they were more concerned with the letter of the law, filing the paperwork, not whether or not this is a valid divorce in the first place. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? The focus is on the certificate. It was also said, and that's uh, Matthew 19. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's Matthew 5. The Pharisees misinterpreted that Deuteronomy passage to say the exact opposite of what it says. And rather than commanding divorce for any and all reasons, it limited those reasons for which a divorce could be sought. It provided a concession due to their hardness of heart, not a mandate that required that right paperwork be done. The question is not about filing a certificate of divorce. It's about honoring the one flesh union that God had established. So if you want to turn back to Matthew 5, we're going to take a closer look at the actual passage this morning. Jesus establishes the teaching and the the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees in verse 31 when he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And as we've seen, that teaching is based on an incorrect understanding of Deuteronomy, focuses on the certificate of divorce rather than the more important issue, which is, is this a a divorce that God allows at all? Okay? Okay. Jesus makes that clear. So he goes on, verse 31, now to verse 32. Jesus makes that clear in verse 32 when he says this. But I say to, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 32, 532. But I say to you. You know, as, as we've gone through this so far and we've talked about um, the Sermon on the Mount, this section that we're in where, where God, or Jesus lays out the law, lays out the traditions, lays out what they've been taught, and then he says, but in every, all six cases, but I say to you, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God made flesh, authoritatively says, but I say to you, not adding to the Word of God, not interpreting it in some new and foreign way. Rather, Jesus interprets the text according to its original and true meaning. This is made clear as we jump back to Matthew 19 when Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It was not so, Matthew 19.8. He goes on to say, Everyone who divorces his wife, 
except on the grounds of sexual immorality. And with those words, Jesus rejects every single possible reason that one might give for divorce, with one exception, sexual immorality. Other translations use the words fornication, unchastity, or marital unfaithfulness. The human heart can think of all kinds of reasons to divorce a spouse. From a worldly standpoint, standpoint we might think that, think that some are acceptable, others might not be. For some, the spark is gone. We cite irreconcilable differences. Some cases, there may even be an abusive relationship. As horrible as that might be, and it is, even that by itself is not grounds for a biblical divorce. It may call for a separation for the sake of one's safety, but even that falls short of God's standard for divorce. You know, I can think of a number of friends, both male and female, who have come to me over the years for counsel, even before I was a pastor. Typical conversation goes like this. God just wants me to be happy. Where have you read that? God wants you to be faithful. Or, I've prayed about it, and God has given me peace about divorcing my spouse. No. No, God does not give you peace about disobeying His clearly written Word. You not only have the sin of an unbiblical divorce, but you have added to it the sin of taking God's name in vain by putting words into His mouth that He did not say. God will never, ever, ever put His stamp of approval upon something that He clearly forbids. Remember, God hates divorce. The only exception that he's ever given is the exception here in Matthew 5.32, sexual immorality. There are no other exceptions. No matter how difficult the situation might be, in a fallen world, it should not surprise us that we have significant difficulties in marital relationships. But God only gives one exception, sexual immorality. The reason for this should be clear. It's not here in the text of Matthew 5. Um, here, Jesus only gives us the exception. Matthew 19, which I've already referenced multiple times, he states the reason. Verses 4 to 6, he roots it in the one flesh union which God instituted at creation. One man, one woman, one flesh union for life. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What to, therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That word separate means divorce. And the reason that sexual immorality is the only exception that Christ makes for divorce is because sexual immorality, by definition of what it is, breaks the one flesh union. It breaks the one flesh union. Nothing else, no matter how bad it might be, does that. But sexual immorality does. 
It takes the one flesh union that was established through marriage and consummation and destroys it. That's why sexual immorality can be the, can be the only acceptable reason to permit a divorce. The union's already been severed. You see that? The union's already been severed. The person who's guilty of adultery or sexual immorality has broken the bond and has become united to another. The link is gone. The one flesh no longer remains. And therefore, a divorce is legitimate. Hear this, it's not a commandment. Again, God does not command divorce. It's not a commandment, but it is an exception that God has made. But Jesus goes on to describe what happens when one gets a divorce for lesser reasons. We know that people get divorced for a whole host of reasons beyond sexual immorality. What about those cases? To this, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 5.32 The Bible assumes remarriage. It assumes remarriage. If a man divorces his wife for any reason short of sexual immorality, and that woman remarries, he has caused her to commit adultery. Why is that? Because the one flesh union is not broken by the divorce. The divorce is not recognized by God. The one flesh union is broken when the second marriage is consummated with her new husband. Not only that, the man who marries her commits adultery as well. He slept with another man's wife. Those seem like harsh words. Those seem like harsh words. God's word is clear. Often our understanding of it is not. His his truth is often hard for us to accept. Because as we look around the culture around us, we see divorce as a norm, don't we? It's a norm. It's so common in America, both in the world and in the church. Recently, I stumbled across a a reel on Facebook from a popular television comedy series. And in the clip, a couple of you might guess what it is by my description. In the clip, the couple had been married for a couple weeks. They'd been married for a couple weeks. And of course, the series had built up to that moment for a number of seasons, right? And they were discussing having a ceremony to renew their vows since the man's mother was coming into town. The comedic line was shared by the wife when she says, Funny, I never thought that my second marriage would be to you. Good comedy mimics society. The sad thing about this line is that it's the mindset of so many. First marriage, second marriage, third marriage, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Nothing more than a contractual relationship that could be entered into and then quickly discarded. In fact, it means only slightly more than just shacking up together. Right? An oft-quoted statistic is that divorce is just as common in the church as it is at the world at large. Now, that's actually not true. That statistic is thrown out in order to attack the church. It's actually not true. Studies have shown that people who take their faith seriously are far less likely to divorce than the general public. That said, 
the statistics for divorce are still far, far higher in the church than we would like to see. I know that in our congregation, we have a number of people who have been divorced in the past. This message is not one of condemnation. But I do pray that it's one where I have clearly articulated God's will for marriage. I don't know specific situations, nor do I need to. God knows it all. He knows the struggles. He knows the motivation. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. He can redeem every situation, and that's my prayer for each and every family. Beyond that, beyond that, every single one of us has been affected by divorce in some way. We may be children of divorced parents. We may have adult children who've been taught God's will for marriage, yet they found themselves in an unwanted, unwanted divorce. Family members, friends, co-workers, we see it over and over again. And if we can agree on, agree on one thing, if we can agree on one thing, divorce is never, ever, in any circumstance, a good thing. It's not a good thing. Even if a divorce occurs on biblical grounds, no one celebrates divorce, at least not in good conscience. It's the result of sinful people living together in a sinful world. It is not and never has been God's design. I'm borrowing from an article by Family Life Ministry. Harvard sociologist Armand Nikolai III said, Divorce is not a solution, but an exchange of problems. Novelist Pat Conroy said of his own marriage breakup, Each divorce is the death of a small civilization. Extended families are affected as loved ones become separated. Children are affected as they're shuffled from home, one home to another, never really knowing where they belong and stuck in the middle between two parents who have irreconcilable differences. One woman wrote after her divorce, our divorce has been the most painful, horrid, ulcer-producing, agonizing event you can imagine. I wish I could put on the piece, this piece of paper for all the world to see a picture of what divorce feels like. Maybe my picture would stop people before it's too late. Divorce is never God's plan for the family. His purpose in marriage is for man and a woman to mirror his image, to complete each other, experience companionship, to multiply a godly legacy. And rather than looking at exception clauses, they're there. Rather than looking for exception clauses or some other way out, our goal should be to honor God in our marriages. Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5 Paul uses the metaphor of the relationship between a husband and a wife and compares it to the relationship between Christ and his church. And the whole point of marriage is to be a visual aid for the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. 
Hear that. The whole point of marriage is to be a visual aid between, for that relationship. As the world looks at our marriages, they should see Christ in all things. It should be a picture of, of, of the bridegroom who prepares his wife and cleanses her with the washing of the word, prepares her so, for the marriage feast. Right? That's what it should be look, that's what they should look like. But we don't do that. Jesus Christ loves his church. He loves his church. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never divorce us. He sacrificially gives himself up while the church voluntarily submits to his headship. And like marriage, the relationship between Christ and his church is a one flesh union. A one flesh union. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Echo of Matthew 19, echo of Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, and this is a cool, cool saying by Paul, after the whole thing about the, the metaphor between a man and a woman and teaching husbands and, and wives how they are to operate in the home, he gets all the way to the end and he says this, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, the one flesh union. When the watching world looks at our marriages, may they see Christ. May they see Christ. Let's pray. Father, some things in Scripture are hard to read. Your Word is clear, but they're hard to read because for us, in our sinful clouding of our minds, they're hard to accept. Especially when we look at a world around us and we see something like divorce that is so common, so common in the world, yet this truths of the one flesh union is true for believers and non-believers alike. Because you and you alone have established the covenant of marriage cannot be redefined. It is what it is because you said that's what it is. So Father, I pray, starting with our church, Lord, that our marriages would model that relationship between your Son, Jesus Christ, and his church. Father, let us be witnesses. Let us be models, Lord, for the world as they look and see there is something special here that points to something so, so much bigger. But Father, beyond that, beyond the church, I do pray on a cultural standpoint, um, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit that you would change hearts and minds, Lord, to understand exactly what marriage is and why it is so significant. Lord, I pray for those in positions of of authority and positions of power and in positions of judgment, Lord, that there would be a return to your standard 
And Father, I know that that's a, a big ask, but you're a big God. And Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would move in just a powerful way um, in our nation, in our world, but start with our hearts individually. Father, we honor you. We love you. And we submit to your headship. Father, we, we want to model that truth. We pray these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, please rise for the benediction. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, which is what he does to his bride. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in his peace, but stay for lunch. <laughs>